And so there's a difference between somebody who loses it or cheats one time or lies and recognizes that they're, you know, in a bad space or they, you know, even hit someone. I think that there's a, a moment of self-awareness and repentance. James says we all stumble in many ways. We're all sinners. There is no perfect relationship. But when you're a relatively healthy person in a relationship, when you mess up, you fess up, you make amends, you do what it takes. You don't just say, you know, you owe me forgiveness and this isn't a big deal and you better forget about this as a Christian. And so the destructive relationship element comes in when these patterns are, or these incidents become patterns. Welcome to the Faithful and True podcast. Uh, on our show today, we have very special guests. First of all, we're ga- we're joined by our host, Dr. Greg Miller, and uh, Debbie Laser, the director of Faithful and True. And our special guest today is Leslie Vernick, who is an experienced, licensed counselor, coach, and author of seven books, including the national bestseller, The Emotionally Destructive Relationship. Uh, Leslie, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And Leslie, it's great um, for you to be here because, um, as I mentioned earlier, the topic of emotionally destructive relationships is one that often comes up in the field that we work in. And even the language that you used, I think, is so clarifying um, to help people understand that when emotions aren't handled properly, they do become destructive. So if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about kind of how you began to be interested specifically in this field And even I'd be interested to know how you came up with the language of emotionally destructive relationships. Yeah, so my journey was actually rather personal. Um, It wasn't professional. Uh, So I was an abused child. My mom um, left my father when I was eight years old and my brother and sister who were younger than I went to live in a one bedroom apartment in Chicago. And my mother was an alcoholic. She was bipolar. We didn't know that at the time, but her behavior was pretty scary and abusive. She was never depressed in the bipolar. She was always a manic part. And so at five foot tall at hundred pounds, she could walk the South side of Chicago for two days and no one would bother her. That's how mad she looked, <laughs> how scary mad she looked and nobody just wanted to, she just carved a wide swath. So my dad had been petitioning the courts for years to get custody of his. He had become a Christian or had recommitted his life to Christ and was really concerned about what was going on at home. We weren't going to school, all different kinds of things. She knocked out my front teeth. Um, and so finally, when I was in high school, he got custody of us. And so we went to live with my father. Now, at that time, I wasn't really happy about that because I was running the streets. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was a wild child. But um, my dad brought us to his home. He had remarried. Um, I had to go to church. I had to go to school. I had to go to youth group, all those kind of things that parents typically try to help their children do, which I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I rebelled for a while. But after about half a year, I, I really began to settle in and I became a Christian. And as I became a Christian and began to really study God's word, my youth pastor really took me under his wing and he was going to seminary for counseling. And so I was his like practice counseling student. <laughs> and so he would practice with me as I babysat his kids. And it was just a really neat relationship um, in which I began to get a different sense of who I was than the one my mother gave me. Now, fast forward, I'm in graduate school. My mother's trying to come back into my life and I'm, I'm struggling as a Christian. Do I allow this woman back in my life? I tried several times and she would still do very destructive things. For example, she would give me money and say, here, I'm so sorry. Here, pay your tuition. I'd pay my tuition. And she'd say to everybody, I stole the money from her and I had to pay her back. And, 
you know, just different crazy things like that. So I didn't trust her. I didn't feel safe with her. And yet all the advice back then, this was in the early seventies was all about, you know, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, forgive and forget boundaries are bad. So now I'm getting married. My husband's terrified of my mother. He's wanting to come to my wedding. Is it bad to not invite your mother to your own wedding? So there was lots of personal questions that I had to wrestle with when nobody talked about boundaries, that book wasn't even out. But I'm asking myself as a believer, is God really asking me to be a doormat? Is he really, what is a relationship? Is a relationship a relationship if somebody feels afraid? How could that be a relationship? It's not, she's my mother, I care about her, but I don't think I want to see her. I don't think I want her to babysit my kids if I have any, all those kind of things. And so as I went into my clinical work, I had done a ton of work myself, just trying to figure out what the Bible has to say. I knew clinically what I was supposed to do. Um, but even back then, those boundaries weren't real clear. But spiritually, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I really dug into God's word. And I saw that God had a lot to say about relationships. And his heart was for healthy, strong bonds between people. We are wired to connect. And we are wired to be in loving, safe, trusting relationships. And that's not always possible. And so we didn't have the answers or the words to talk about what do we do when you're not in a loving, safe, healthy, trusting relationship? Then what? Mm -hmm. You know what I, I hear in your story is when um, your father did get custody and you did get moved out of that situation, you didn't want to go. And, you know, wow. that that familiarity created some level of comfort, even though it was destructive. So you live in unhealthy and that's all you know. And, and it feels scarier to move into a new space than it does to keep, continue to function in the old unhealthy space. And so I really understand what that feels like for our clients and for my coaching um, people that we work with is that, you know, sometimes we aren't willing to make the change until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of what's next. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for us, Leslie, um, how you define emotionally destructive characteristics? In the relationship? Yeah. So, so I think I'll make a difference between an emotionally destructive or even a physically abusive incident mm -hmm. and a relationship. So when I was a new mom, for example, um, I was afraid that I would be like my mother. Um, I, you know, didn't know any different about mothering. You know, when your kids are bad, you hit them or swing them around by their arms or whatever she did, pull their hair. And I was really afraid that I would have some of those traits. I happened to work at a mid-sized hospital in Michigan and I was a social worker in the child abuse uh, department that had just, because the child abuse laws had just been passed that I was supposed to help the doctors and educate the nurses about how to recognize child abuse when it comes to the hospital. This is a funny story. So I'm post-pregnancy, my child is two years old. I'm in the dressing room trying to find new clothes because I finally lost my pregnancy weight. And he decides to throw a fit in the dressing room and just lays flat down and just embarrasses me by screaming out, you know, I want to go home. I don't want to. And I was so embarrassed. I, in a fit of embarrassed anger, I grabbed him by his little arm and pulled him up to his feet. And I said, stop it right now. And he looked at me like I was the worst person in the world. And he held out his arm. And he said, mom, really loud. You broke my arm. And his little elbow was dangling from his arm. And I was horrified. I picked him up, took him to the hospital, talked to the doctors, told him what I did. Um, and it wasn't broken. It was nursemaid's elbow. He had a weakness there. I didn't pull him up that hard, but it popped it out. And, but it really woke me up to my ability or propensity or pattern of, you know, how I was going to handle myself when my son provoked me. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a lot of empathy for parents who did lose it, but it also 
helped me to make a decision. I didn't lie about it. I told my husband what I did. I told the doctor what I did. I took responsibility for what I did. I didn't blame my kid. If you hadn't been throwing a fit, I wouldn't have acted this way. And so there's a difference between somebody who loses it or cheats one time or lies and recognizes that they're, you know, in a bad space or they, you know, even hit someone. I think that there's a, a moment of self-awareness and repentance. James says, we all stumble in many ways. We're all sinners. There is no perfect relationship. But when you're a relatively healthy person in a relationship, when you mess up, you fess up, you make amends, you do what it takes. You don't just say, you know, you owe me forgiveness and this isn't a big deal and you better forget about this as a Christian. And so the destructive relationship element comes in when these patterns are, or these incidents become patterns that there isn't a repentance. So there's a pattern of controlling behavior. There's a pattern of deceitful behavior. There's a pattern of addictive behavior, betrayal behavior. There's a pattern of, um, you know, emotional abuse and verbal abuse. And when the other person says, stop, don't, ouch, I don't trust you anymore. I'm, I was afraid of you. It's deflected as you're too sensitive. You're being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and so those things then become destructive, not only to the relationship, the relationship becomes toxic, but it becomes destructive to the very personhood, soul, spirit, and body of the person mm -hmm. in that relationship. Yeah. Um, would, oh, you also, would you also say, because in the story that you told this idea that fear becomes part of the currency of relationship. And so you use intimidation or fear or something like that to try to create the control and that becomes part of the pattern. Yeah, and so when, when someone's trying to control someone, um, whether a parent's trying to control a child or a husband's trying to control a wife, whatever tactic works, dirty looks work, a raised fist works, a punch in the nose works, a gun to your head works, um, I'm gonna leave you works. So whatever works, whether it's physical, emotional, or even, and I think this is something really um, not talked about very well, but in, in the church, spiritually, Bible mm -hmm. verses work. Like I'm the head, I'm the husband, I get my way, I get the final say. And so I can control a lot by using scripture inappropriately. Um, in your story, um, did you have moments where you pendulated out of the chaos of your family and begin to see maybe there are other ways to live? Or really, was it not until you moved in with your father that you could actually see there were alternatives? Yeah, so the kids I hung with were all the same as me, if not mm -hmm. worse. And so we all had destructive family. In fact, this is another funny story. I was speaking at a church in Chicago. It was actually my dad and stepmom's church. And a woman came up to the audience and goes, your story sounds a lot like a girl I grew up with. And it was somebody who lived right in my neighborhood. And, we <laughs> and I never used my maiden name in my book stuff. So she just thought, it might be you. And it was. But um I didn't know any different until I lived with my father. And, you know, when I would be provocative or I would be, you know, sassy or mean, I never got slapped in the face. I never got, you know, pushed down. I never got, you know, scolded in an emotionally abusive way. I got disciplined for sure. Um, but there was a difference. And, and when I provoked anger, I didn't get abuse in, you know, in return, I got, you know, talked to, I got prayed for. My mother, uh, she was so angry when my father won custody of us that she didn't allow us to take anything with us. So we just came with the clothes on our back. And my stepmother recently died this summer and I, was, I had the opportunity to give her eulogy. And one of the things I said about her is that she, she, when I came to live with her, she already had three of her own kids. And so step, step families, blended families, there was no blended family back then. There was no books on blended families. They were just flying by the seat of their pants. But she took us to the store and she had to buy us everything, like everything, all new clothes, all new shoes, all new school things. We had nothing. And 
I think that would be an opportunity for her to be a little snarky toward these new kids who took a lot of resources from her kids, you know, their bedrooms there, you know, we had one bathroom, three bedrooms. Now we have six kids instead of three kids. Um, and she was just gracious. She was kind. And I, I was impressed by that, even though I didn't show it in my heart, it moved me. And I think that, you know, so I began to see a different family. Then I began to go to this youth group and I saw this youth pastor and his family and a different kind of relationship between a husband and wife. And then I saw, you know, my friends, new friends at church. And so I began to see some things different and how I could do things differently. And that began to heal uh, some of the hurts in my, in my heart and my belief in how things could work and how things could be and learning what healthy relationships look like, not perfect ones, but healthy ones. What do you suppose with the, the clients that you work with, what is the role of being introduced to alternatives you know, one of the things that we often say is just wanting it to be different is not enough. We hear a lot of pledges. I will never parent like my parents did. I will never do it like that. But there is something about this vision being cast by being presented with alternatives. So what what do you see as that introduction to different ways of relating and behaving? Well, I think that's the role of the church, really. I think that's the role of community. Um, I think that's what God is talking about when he's building community, even in the Old Testament, when he builds it in Deuteronomy, Exodus, he talks about building community. And he talks about, hey, if you if your ox goes and gores your neighbor's ox, you know, and uh, you better pay back that neighbor his ox. And if you did it on purpose or you're, you knew your ox was a bad ox or you knew you had a bad fence, you better give him two oxes. And so he teaches us how to repair um, damages, whether we did them intentionally or we did them unintentionally, there is repairs and amends that need to be made when you sin against someone or you do something that harms them. And I think that when we can, when we can do that as leaders in the church, as we can do that as coaches and therapists, um, it's interesting, you know, sometimes I have to confront uh, or at least have a conversation, a hard conversation with a counselor or a pastor who, who in my opinion, is giving some bad advice. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when they do that with graciousness and in gratitude, uh, you know, wow, I didn't think about it that pers perspective. For example, I say that marriage counseling is, is absolutely not the first step that you do when there's been a betrayal or a destructive mm -hmm pattern to this relationship. Each person has their own work to do. Um, and when they start doing marriage counseling and I come in as an advocate for my client, uh, a pastor who's resistant to that, who's um, defensive, who's argumentative, is an unhealthy leader. And so I think when churches, my church was a little tiny Bible church, and but they had healthy leaders in there. They had healthy youth group. They had healthy community. And I think when you begin to witness that, whether it's in small group, whether you're in Awana as a kid, you begin to get a taste for something different. I was curious, Leslie, about when you noticed that we all started as professionals taking verbal abuse or emotional abuse more seriously in our clinical work, um, clearly physical abuse, sexual abuse has been talked about for many, many years. It seems to me that one of the lovely things about your work is it's really bringing to the light of day this other huge arena of emotional abuse that most most people haven't even had names to call it that and are are so happy to have that validated when that's been a part of their life. When, when did you see that change happening? Maybe you're part of that, you know, actually in your writing and your work. I do believe you might be one of those pioneers that has brought that to the light of day in many people's lives. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. You know, uh, one of the things I used to say is, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not in Proverbs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, the opposite is in Proverbs, that words hurt, that yeah. life and death is in the power of the tongue. And it always struck me as so odd 
when someone would go in and complain about emotional abuse. And uh, I was, I worked at CCEF for a while, um, which is the very strict Jay Adams um, counseling agency. And it's not like that now, but mm-hmm. it was a little bit like that when I was there. And when I would, and I was there, you know, in the seventies and I was like, no, we don't do it this way or not eighties. And I, no, it's not, this is not how we do things. And they would be like, there is no such thing in the Bible as emotional abuse. And I said, that's not true. The Bible talks all about our words and the power of our words and the power of our tongue. And, mm-hmm. you know, and God cares about that. And we have to begin to describe this. We have to begin to talk mm-hmm. about it because it's real and it's damaging and it hurts people. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting when I'm working with some women who are clearly in emotionally destructive relationships that um, unlike physical abuse, when that happens, they can call for help. They can call the police. They get some action. But I think for the emotional abuse, that that isn't necessarily the case yet. You know, may, maybe one day that will be the case. But and in even, terms of them yeah. getting help, yeah, I think it gets much harder. And even I would say, Debbie, <clears throat> there's financial abuse. There's spiritual oh, abuse. Oh, absolutely. And yes. there, there is sexual abuse. I think when a woman goes in and says that her husband has been sexually abused, abusing her, um, I've had more instances than not where it's discounted that it's diminished mm-hmm. that you know well he has his needs and you know um you know you need to accommodate him or he's going to find someone else or he's going to start watching porn all the horrible things that women have been told or they've been not protected or not defended or not um you know um i think i just read in job five yesterday about how god protected people from the twisted, ugly words of other people. And if he does that for his people as a church body, as Christian counselors, as people helpers, we're to do that for one another. Not that we can fix their life, but we can validate their reality. This is wrong. This Mm -hmm. is bad. This is harmful and destructive to you. Yeah. Um, One of the things I'm hearing is the significant role that the church can play in either being healing and redemptive or also in perpetuating the chaos and the pain and the abuse. Um, Is there a a pattern that you've experienced when you do encounter a church that is resistant or a leadership that is resistant, a way that you can support a a person, even when the church seems resistant to the work that you want to do or need to do? You know, one of the tactics of an abusive system, whether it's a home or a church, is isolation. And so when you're attending a conservative church that may be very patriarchal, that they may coddle the whole idea that, well, he's the head of the home. And so he gets to do what he wants. For example, I was working with a woman and this was before I wrote any of my bigger books. It was my book, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. The pastor read the book and he happened to like it. And so he sent the woman to me for counseling because she was responding in a reactive way to her husband who was micromanaging her. So she was resisting his power over her and she was resisting his control over her in a sinful way. But instead of dealing with his control over her, he's sending her to learn to turn the other cheek and let it go and all those kind of things. So she, she was a smart woman and she was really on top of things. And, and as I began to understand the dynamics better, you know, I talked to the pastor many, many times Finally, she had a boundary. Her uh, husband was scolding the children. They didn't empty the garbage right. He was, you know, banging down the door to have this hour long lecture and the the child locked the door and the father broke down the door and the um, woman called the police. 
So the church brought her up on church discipline mm. and excommunicated her from communion as well as from membership because she um, called in the secular authorities. And as much as I tried to advocate for her, um, even she started attending my church and my church started advocating for her with this church. Um, and this is the, the, it's an isolationist church. They don't want to hear anybody else. They're deflecting, they're manipulating. And, um, and so those are the, those are the abusive systems that we have to educate women that, Hey, this isn't the only church out there. And this isn't the only thing people are saying about this. And so for you to grow into your maturity, you're going to have to learn what Proverbs says you need to learn, which is discernment and good judgment. And so you have to begin to expand what you're thinking, because you've only heard this one point of view. And if all you listen to, and this is what I've been saying lately, if all you listen to is Fox News, or if all you listen to is CNN, you're only going to get one perspective. And so you've got to kind of change channels and look around and see what other people are saying about this same story, because it might not be the whole story. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, one, one of the things that we see is that people's ability to trust themselves and their own discernment is one of the things that is lost in an abusive system. And I know that the women here at Faithful and True, Deb, has often talked about this. It's a principle that we teach at the women's workshop, but this idea that we begin by learning to trust ourselves again. And when that internal warning light is going off that something is off, instead of dismissing it, we move towards it and engage it and listen to it. So, so important. And I so appreciate you doing that because a woman has her own work to do. It's sort of like I've been playing a lot in my mind lately, and I'm not sure if I'm going to write about it or just teach about it, but I talk a lot about story in my work and, you know, rewriting your life story. And, you know, if the woman is the character in her story as the victim, you know, she's been the victim of sexual betrayal. Um, she has her own heroine's journey to take of how do I learn to come through this as a stronger person and not just get rid of this guy to find another guy I can depend on because then she really hasn't done her work. So to really learn to do her work, to become more uh, trusting of her own internal radar of what's right and what's wrong. And unfortunately, some of the very Christian virtues that we embody as wonderful, especially in the feminine side, like um, long suffering and forbearance and loyalty and forgiveness mm -hmm. and all of those things, which are wonderful things. When you don't have discernment and good judgment, as well as boundaries with those, um, they can lead to a, a being targeted because you're mm -hmm. easy prey. Mm -hmm. I like in your book, I actually listened to your book as I was driving to Chicago once. So um, it's one of the ways I get in some of my reading. But I, I love that you talk very specifically about what emotional abuse and, and destruction looks like. And I guess that's why I asked you that question. I mean, there are many ways that that shows up from blaming another person to, um, you know, always never statements to power control, many, many things. I also like how you changed your focus towards the end, too, of talking about the person on the other side of that kind of emotional destruction, looking at how they respond to that. Um, because you're right, there are always two people in this interaction in the relationship. And if someone becomes too quiet and too tolerant and too long suffering, um, that just continues the pattern of emotional abuse. Someone has to do something to change the pattern, whether the person uh, confesses and changes their ways or another person decides they're not going to tolerate something intolerable. So I, I really like how you're addressing both of those things for a relationship. 
And either one can start making that change, as I understand your writing. Right. I mean, I just say to my women, change the dance. You can yeah. change the dance. It doesn't mean it's going to be a better dance, but it's not going to be the same dance. And, and so one of the things that I think is really helpful for the women that I work with is helping them to take those next steps for themselves. So for example, if they change the dance and they say, no, I'm not willing to do that anymore instead of, okay, I'll do it. If they just take that one step, then they're going to have an opportunity to see what the next step is because the response they get, all right, you know, I understand, or you're being an unsubmissive woman or you have a Jezebel. Well, that, that clarifies things right now. It ups the ante because now the abuse is a little bit more overt, a little bit more direct when it's kind of fuzzy and they're just not sure if they begin to get more bold or they begin to have boundaries, they begin to say, you know, you might want to do that sexually, but that's not good for me. I don't like that. I don't like feeling that way. And he's going, oh, I'm glad you told me. I didn't know that before. That's one thing that builds a different dance. But if he says, hey, I need this. And if you don't do this, I'm going to find someone who will. Mm -hmm. That's a very different statement. And that clarifies things for her. She's just an object to use. She's not a person to love. Yeah. One, one, one thing you mentioned that I think is so significant, especially when we're talking about our families, is this idea of loyalty. And just there is a, a richness and a beauty to loyalty, but true loyalty is based upon truth, where instead of it being a fantasy of my family and I'm kind of mesmerized by the fantasy, I start with whatever is true. And in that truth, I can be loyal, but that loyalty, because of the truth, can create boundaries. And so we're so sometimes afraid of betraying our families or, you know, we often talk about telling the family story can be a form of betrayal. But actually, if it is truth, it is all truth is honoring, even if it's painful. Yeah. And, and, and so I think a, a really good distinction that we use is the difference between hurt and harm. Mm. So when love does no harm. So if I tell the truth about someone that doesn't need to be told because I'm trying to hurt their life in some way, then that causes them harm. But the Bible says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so when you tell the truth about someone or to tell someone the truth about themselves, um, your goal, if the doctor says to you, hey, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you have cancer. He's not trying to harm you. He's trying to help you do what you need to do to get the best chance to live the best life at whatever time you have left. And what do you need to do about that? And so I think that we have confused that. And I think that it's really important for our women and, and men to learn that you cannot have a healthy relationship when there's a blanket of deceit. Um, the Bible tells us, um, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And it also tells us that our enemies can be members of our own household. And so you can't have a relationship, at least not a healthy relationship with the enemy, because you're afraid of them. They've already harmed you, mm -hmm. but they may be a member of your household. And so you can love your enemy, but you don't live with your enemy. Yep, absolutely. Well, and that's a great place for us to stop. And we're going to continue the conversation, our next podcast, and we're going to talk specifically about the emotionally destructive relationship in the context of addiction, which is very much the clientele and the group of people that we work with. So thank you for being with us, Leslie, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. It's been a good talk. Thank you. Thanks. Leslie, thank you so much. We'd like to invite our viewers and our listeners uh, to learn more about Leslie. Visit her website, leslievernick.com. You can see Leslie's name on the screen, so it's L-E-S-L-I-E-V-E-R-N-I-C-K 
Com. So visit uh, her website where you uh, have the opportunity to purchase her books in her store or just learn a lot more about uh, the wisdom of Leslie Vernick. Uh, until we meet you again, uh, thanks again, Leslie. And uh, uh, we hope that those that are watching uh, will have a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision. <music>